everybody. Welcome to episode 80 of Waking Up to Narcissism. I'm your host, Tony Overbay. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist, certified mindful habit coach, and I am also host of the Virtual Couch podcast, as well as Murder on the Couch and the Waking Up to Narcissism question and answer podcast. And I highly encourage you to follow the links in the link tree and subscribe to that premium question and answer podcast because uh, answering all the world's questions over there. If you have questions about narcissism or emotional immaturity in your life and relationships, then please send them to contact at tonyoverbay.com. So let's get right to today's episode. Buckle up because this is probably one of the, the most impactful or greatest story times I think that I have seen. And I have had a lot of emails come in. Let me read it. Hi, Tony. I have a story for you. I'm going to move this over in front of the camera so anybody watching on the YouTube channel, it will look like I, I am actually looking at you. Here we go. Let's try again. Take two. Hi, Tony. I have a story for you. Once upon a time, there was a pathologically kind person named Alex. Known for his caring heart and warm spirit, he put everybody's needs before his own. This was especially true in his relationship with Jamie, his charismatic yet emotionally immature partner. Alex often found himself morphing into whatever version of himself Jamie needed at the moment, a chameleon trying to maintain peace and happiness. Over time, Alex began to realize that he was slowly losing his sense of self. He loved Jamie, but he started noticing that their relationship was draining him, filling him with anxiety and self-doubt. It dawned on him that he had been neglecting his own needs for the sake of Jamie's unpredictable moods and desires. So with newfound clarity, Alex decided it was time to stand up for himself. So one day, when Jamie tried to manipulate him into doing something that he didn't want to do, Alex calmly but firmly said, no, Jamie, I have my own needs too. Now, Jamie was taken aback. Their dynamic started to shift. Jamie began pushing harder, using bigger emotional weapons, trying to regain control. There were dramatic confrontations, pleas for sympathy, and even moments of feigned kindness. But Alex, now more aware, saw these for what they were. They were attempts at manipulation. The more that Jamie pushed, the clearer it became to Alex. He started to see their relationship for what it was, a cycle of emotional control and self-sacrifice. It was far from the loving partnership that he desired and he thought that he was a part of. He realized that he was in a trauma bond, that he was stuck in a toxic dance that kept him tethered to Jamie. So with a heavy heart, but also admittedly a sense of liberation, Alex decided to leave the relationship. It was a difficult choice. It was full of pain and uncertainty, but he knew that it was necessary, but he knew it was a necessary step toward reclaiming his sense of self. Now, embracing his newfound freedom, Alex embarked on the journey of healing and self-care. He sought therapy. He joined support groups. He started doing things he loved, but he had neglected, like painting and hiking. And as he reconnected with himself, he felt an inner peace he hadn't felt in a long time. He really started to like who he was. Through this journey, Alex learned the value of boundaries, self-love. He realized that being kind did not mean sur surrendering his own needs. And while he still had a heart full of kindness, he knew that he now deserved as much love and respect as he gave others. So from then on, Alex walked through life with a healthier perspective on love and relationships. His past experiences were painful, but they were also lessons that shaped him, reminding him of the importance of self-care and emotional reciprocity in any relationship. He found strength in his vulnerability, using his experiences to fuel the journey towards self-discovery, healing, and ultimately a healthier love. And then Alex thought to himself, why, why am I walking into a urinal and why am I starting to go to the bathroom? Oh, wait, stop. Alex wakes up just as he was starting to relieve himself in his own bed, hearing Jamie's snoring. He reached down. He felt the bed. Oh man. Okay. Thank goodness. 
I caught myself because Alex's dreams often ended with him walking into a urinal and starting to go to the bathroom. Now, some of the time after he woke up. So he would realize that he, a 44-year-old man, has wet the bed. But worse yet, his 45, okay, she claims to be 38-year-old wife, Jamie, then rails on him for days, telling their kids, posting on social media, that her husband, the acclaimed, well, I won't put my job in there, but apparently because of my job, I'm supposed to be perfect, wets his bed from time to time. But why does he, you might ask? Well, it's because his wife, Jamie, for quite some time now, insists that Alex drink his eight cups of eight ounces of water each day to the point where he must video him doing it and send it to his wife. And Tony, I, I mean, Alex, he says, is a grown man with a very good career and people respect me. I mean him. But Alex sends his wife videos of him drinking water. And if he doesn't finish it before the end of the day, well, he has to drink it all right before bed. But wait, it gets better. Jamie is a very light sleeper, except when she's out like a rhino hit by a tranquilizer dart. But that's a story for a different day. She is until she's not. Just like you know me, she always says, I like my steak medium until she likes it medium well, until she likes it rare, until she doesn't like red meat, until, ooh, gross, how can you even eat steak? Until, well, she wants steak again. Just like she hates running until she likes it and she can't believe I'll stop it by McDonald's still. That's her little kid, she says, until I spot a McNugget sauce on the floorboard of her Tesla, which she never was going to drive. Well, until she did. Anyway, back to peeing the bed. Did I mention that Jamie is a light sleeper until she's not? Oh, wait, yes, I did. Forgive my short-term memory, but Tony, as you so aptly pointed out in an earlier episode, my short-term memory is basically on sabbatical. Thanks to my complex post-traumatic stress disorder from the narcissistic abuse from my, I mean, Alex has CPTSD from his wife anyway. And he did say, uh, that's in all caps. Make sure you stress that when you read the story, because I know you will, Tony. So anyway, Alex isn't allowed to wake up during the night to go to the bathroom because Jamie will lose her mind. She would never do that, except for when she does. And it sounds like somebody turned on a garden hose and aimed it right into the middle of the bowl. But if I bring that up in the morning, geez, uh, sounded like an elephant was getting a bath in a circus in the bathroom last night. All of the water coming down real loud, right? I'll get a blank stare. And uh, I don't know what you're talking about. Okay, enough, Tony. I'm a grown man who has to send videos of him drinking all of his little Wawa so his wifey won't lose her ever loving mind. Because how could I not take care of myself? Do I not care about her enough to simply drink water? Water now is the bane of my existence, but I actually know it's necessary. Anyway, this is all a way to say, can you talk again about love or control? Because I'm not feeling the love, but control? Well, let me answer that after I pound this next cup of water. So I just want to say thank you, air quote, Alex. That was incredibly well-written, but it was also equally sad and frustrating, but I appreciate you taking the time to write that out, and I hope it was cathartic, because I promise you that most of the Waking Up the Narcissism listeners, they will hear you, they will see you, they will understand you, and I would imagine that they are not simply saying, well, just tell her that you're not going to do it anymore, because I, I think we really do see you. Today, I do want to talk a little bit more about love and and control. And before I even get to that, I got a lot of great feedback from last week's episode about therapy and emotional immaturity, narcissism, what those experiences are like in therapy, and great feedback from therapists and people alike. I'll just read one very simple thing that someone said. This episode was so impactful for me. I can't describe the relief it has given me. So many sessions with a therapist leaving, feeling more confused and despondent. 
and they did the little praying hands. So I appreciate the feedback and I would love your uh, continued examples of what your experience maybe has been in therapy. Also, what's good, what has worked. And when you've had a therapist that really has been able to help you. And I, I still am having a plea or a call to any therapist that would love to work more with the pathologically kind population and on the, this day of telehealth, and I would love to just have a, a directory of people that are, and I'm not saying waking up the narcissism approved, but if this is a population that you would like to work with or do work with, or if you would like to, if you're a therapist and you have some ideas or thoughts about what you have seen work, I would love to bring you on and, and maybe we can do an interview. So let's talk about love. Let's talk about love and let's talk about control. Because uh, love is basically, I want to make a pitch for it. It's the highest point of our evolution. It's the best strategy that we've come up with to stay alive as a species. Now, not just because it helps us to mate and make babies, because let's be honest, we don't even need love to do that. But what love really does is it helps us form emotional bonds with a few special close people who act as our safety nets. And the more chaotic and crazy and stormy that the world becomes, the more that we desperately want to find and cling to those people that can be these safety nets. Love is like our fort. It's offering us emotional security and it can make things just a lot more bearable. The urge to emotionally connect to somebody, to find a person who we can bear our souls to and say, hold me tight, which is the book by Sue Johnson, which is the therapeutic modality that I absolutely love, emotionally focused therapy. And I do recommend that book, hold me tight. But that, that urge to, to connect with somebody, it's encoded right into our DNA. And it's essential to our lives, uh, to our health and our happiness. It's just as essential as things like food and shelter and sex. So we really do need that emotional bond with a select few people in order to be physically and mentally healthy. We really do need it to survive. I take you back to the, I think it was 1944 and a guy named Bowlby who wrote the paper on family therapy called 44 Juvenile Thieves. And in it, he talks about how beneath the, the surface of indifference, there's this abyss, he says, of sadness. And behind what seems like callousness, there's despair. And the kids that he worked with, they were stuck in this mindset of that, okay, I will shut down. I will never be hurt again. And they became consumed by desperation and by anger. So while he was studying these children, Bowlby was struck by some of the work that Charles Darwin's theories were about natural selection and then how natural selection could even favor survival friendly responses that in a, in a perfect world that we would, we would be friendlier. We would be kinder. We would, we would go toward love. And then that got Bowlby thinking maybe keeping those that we love close by is a genius survival strategy that has been cooked up by evolution itself. But one of the big challenges can be that if the person that you are, are trying to get that love from doesn't know how to express love or they view that the way to get love or their version of love is to control and to keep you by their side by all costs, then you can see where this very thing that may be in our DNA, it's, it's evolutionarily wired into us, can also become one of the biggest detriments to us losing ourselves. Now, are we bonded? Yeah, but it can be that trauma bond. And so that is absolutely not what our DNA is encoded for when we think about love or when we think about getting together with somebody in, a, in an adult relationship. Back to some of the work that Bowlby did, he was looking at kids and he said, most kids are upset when their moms leave them alone. They cry, they throw a tantrum or they sue themselves. Some kids handle it better. They quickly pull themselves together and then they happily welcome their moms back and they can return to playing while still keeping an eye on their mom. So they seem sure that their mom will be there for them if needed. So kids who weren't as resilient, 
they become either anxious or they become aggressive or detached and distant when their mom comes back. So Bowlby noticed that the kids who were able to self-soothe usually had these more loving and responsive moms. The moms of the more aggressive kids, they were more inconsistent with their delivery of validation, of love, of support. And it is that inconsistency that is what started to really drive the the kids into this despair or just this feeling of this deep abandonment. The moms of the detached kids were colder and they tended to be more dismissive. So from these observations of connection and disconnection, Bulby was able to see love in action and he started piecing together its patterns. And Bulby did some studies with primates that would now be, I think, probably considered uh, unethical, where he learned that if an infant was isolated from its, its mother or attachment figure, that it became desperate for a connection. So this is the experiment where when given a choice between a wire mom that dispensed food and that wire pokey, not not a good wire mom, and then a soft cloth mom that didn't give food, the primates chose the soft cuddly mom almost every time. So basically they showed that this early isolation was toxic and that they wanted that love even over food. So even though these baby primates were uh, somewhat physically healthy, if they were separated from their moms during that first year of life, they also grew up to be more socially impaired. And they struggled to solve problems, interpret social cues, and even even struggle to mate because they started to identify that they became depressed or self-destructive and in, in a real way unable to love. So why why are we going into that attachment science? Because what we learn is that having a secure bond with your romantic partner is like the secret ingredient in a recipe for basically a, a happy life. That it's not just good for the relationship, but it's like this superpower for individuals in it too. Now, I am 100% a fan of people becoming differentiated, becoming interdependent. But that's part of the process of growing, of becoming, of becoming more emotionally mature. And that's why I like to say that we get into relationships and we are codependent. We are enmeshed. We don't know what we don't know. We didn't see healthy relationships model for the most part. And then as we go through experiences, go through life, and we start to have different experiences of uh, financial challenges, or we have to move, or jobs, or kids, or death, or or uh, just things that happen, now all of a sudden we express our opinions. We didn't even know how we would show up until these things happened in a relationship with another human being. And then when we start to express our opinions and show up in different ways because we're two different people, then is that a safe environment? Can you look to your partner and say, are you there for me? Can I count on you? Do you have my back? Do you love me? Or does that person seize that moment and then they take control? But they think that that is the way to express love, that, that they're assuming that if I can control the narrative, then that will ease my mind. It will make me feel better without even recognizing the control that they're imposing upon their partner. Even to the point where they'll create a narrative in their mind that says that, but, but I'm doing what's right or I'm doing what's best for us. That might be what you think is best for you, but it's not best for the two of you. When we feel secure, like we are not afraid to be close and we're not afraid to turn to our partner and say, can I count on you? We're actually better at then asking and giving support. We come from this place of a secure attachment. And people who feel like their partner really gets them or really understands their needs, they're the ones who start to be more confident about tackling problems on their own. And I think that's the irony, that as we have a secure base to operate from that we maybe didn't have in childhood, then we know that we can go and do and be on our own, interdependent, because we can come back to this home base and know our partner has our back. We can count on them. They're there for us. 
it doesn't mean that they're criticizing us or saying, well, why did you do that? Or I wouldn't have done that. Or I can't believe you did that. But it's, hey, tell me about that. What was that like? Um, then what did you do? And then the partner is able to share their opinion. Man, I've never done that. Or when I did that, here was my experience. Isn't that crazy? And we're having shared experiences. And I think there is such a difference between, I, and I would imagine there are people that are listening to what I'm saying now even and saying, okay, you're saying that you are, you're creating this need to have this other person that you can't exist on your own. And again, that, that is not the goal. The goal is that we are processing, we are processing emotion in concert with another individual so that we can have this secure attachment and go out and conquer the world and feel more confident in the things that we can do and be because we have someone that we can come back and bounce ideas off of. We don't feel alone. We don't feel like it, it is up to us and only us. That leads to the concept of interdependence. It leads to differentiation where one person ends and the other begins. But it's a process. It's a process of becoming. It truly is. So when things start to go south in a relationship, it can really start to mess with everything. It messes with our bodies. It messes with our autoimmune system. It can affect our, our hormonal systems and even our ability to heal. There's a crazy study where this psychologist named Janice Keekolt Glazer from the, I think, the Ohio State University who had newlyweds fight and then took their blood samples after a few hours. And it turns out the more nasty the fight, the higher their stress hormones and the worse their immune system performed. And these effects could last up to 24 hours. Then she did a study where I think she used a vacuum hose and then made small blisters on women's hands, had them then fight with their husbands and found out that the nastier the fight, the longer it took the blisters to heal on their hands. But now if you flip that around, on the other hand, just holding the hand of somebody that you love that you feel like has your back is therefore you can count on can have this amazing calming effect on our brains. Being with a loving partner can act like a protective shield against stress or shock or even physical pain. And there's those, those studies that show that as well, that the difference between having a securely attached partner in the room with a hand on you or completely out of the room and watching where your stress, your cortisol levels are. So love is not just this, this cherry on the top of the cake. It really is a, a basic human need. It, it goes along with things like oxygen and water. And once we wrap our head around this, we can get to the root of relationship issues much easier. But we have to give up that control. You can have love or control in an adult relationship, not both. And if you feel like I must control this person for their own good, that is control. It is the opposite of love. And I, I challenge you over and over again to lean into that discomfort of letting someone be and do. Now, our brain might go immediately to then they are going to be and do all the way out of the relationship. And quite frankly, we have to work from that possibility that that could actually happen. But there is a, a amazing opportunity to have a real relationship, though, when you allow your partner and yourself to be and do because you're the only version of you. You think and feel the things you do because you're a human being. And when you can start to look at what the other person is doing with curiosity and not with contempt, not with a control, not wanting them to change to make you feel better, then you can start to both of you just be and do and let down that rope of this tug of war of right and wrong and, and good and bad and all or nothing and black or white. But it really, when... When marriages break down, it's not necessarily because of increasing conflict. It's because that the love, the emotional connection starts to fade. And in fact, a drop in emotional responsiveness is a better predictor of how solid a marriage will be a few years down the road than the level of conflict. You can learn how to deal with conflict. You can learn that attention doesn't always, it doesn't have to lead up to contention. You can learn what to do with that discomfort. 
But when there is an emotional disconnect, then that's where a marriage starts to fade. It starts to wilt and die. So those first signs of trouble in paradise are fewer moments of intimacy and responsiveness. You know, the fights, they come later. So being in love, and I've never done this, but you can think of it maybe a little more like walking this tightrope, that the moment that that doubts and fears start brewing, if either if we either clutch on to each other in a panic or run for cover, then our balance is going to get shaky. But to stay on the rope, we need to move almost in sync with each other. We need to respond to each other's emotions. As we connect, we start to balance each other, and it's more about flow, and it's more about equilibrium. It's about emotional equilibrium. But then this fear of isolation and losing someone that we ha- we want close to us, it, it triggers this just panic response in our brains. And our need for this secure emotional connection to our loved one, it, it really is a product of millions of years of evolution. Distressed partners might express it differently, but we're asking those same questions that I mentioned earlier. Are you there for me? Do I matter to you? Will you be there when I need you? The need for emotional connection overshadows even our need for things like food and sex. It's the story of love, of a survival need that we have from cradle, an attachment. We want to know that we matter, somebody cares about us, and they're there for us all the way to the grave. We hear stories, they may be somewhat anecdotal, but you can find them over and over again where when uh, someone has been together with a loved one for a long time and the loved one passes away, that it isn't crazy to see that the other person is not that long after because they just had such a bond. So most of the time when people are starting to blame each other in arguments, that it's actually this desperate cry for connection. It's a protest for feeling disconnected. My pillar one of a connected conversation of this assuming good intentions or nobody wakes up and thinks, how can I hurt my partner? This is where I put a a part B to that. Or there's a reason why people do or say the things they do, because it might be the emotionally immature way that they are attempting to connect and to say, do you care about me? Do you see me? Can I count on you? Where we want to get to this point where we can feel confident and express ourselves But until we have those tools or those skills, oftentimes that comes out in this blaming each other or in these arguments. The only way to to really soothe this in a relationship is for the partners to emotionally reassure each other. Being immobilized in this, I don't know, this face of danger is a built-in response to helplessness. And, And it's really important to make this distinction that we're desperately wanting to be heard and seen and understood and to know that somebody cares about us, but we may not. Well, we don't. We don't have the tools to do that in a mature adult way until often we go through a bunch of, I don't know, the the psychological word is crap, I believe, and then have to go seek out the tools. And even then trying to put those tools in place is difficult and hard because we're viewing everything through our own lens. And we are going to have a lot of discomfort, especially when we start to really sit and stay present and hear maybe the experience of our spouse or our partner. An emotionally immature or or narcissistic person then, they often seek love through control and manipulation. They might exhibit these patterns of behavior that revolve around them getting their needs met or their desires met first and foremost, above all. And frequently that is at the expense or disregard of those around them, especially those close to them. This often involves attempts to control their partner's actions and choices and even manipulate their perceptions and their emotions. They, this is where they may gaslight, they may guilt trip or blame their partner in order to get what they want in that moment. And they do all of this to maintain this sense of superiority or power because that's what makes them feel secure in a relationship. 
but this behavior does not foster genuine emotional connection or mutual respect, which those are the foundations of a healthy, loving relationship. And on the other hand, let's talk about our counterpart, the pathologically kind person who will often seek love by trying to manage other people's emotions in an attempt to keep the peace, bless their heart kind of way. And these individuals are typically people pleasers who do not like conflict. They will do anything to avoid conflict and distress, often, very often, at the cost of their own well-being or their own sense of self. So they'll go out of their way to make sure that other people are happy, constantly appreciating or anticipating and then and reacting to the moods of those around them. And this might suppress their own needs, their own feelings, their own emotions, because they feel so responsible for other people's emotions, which again is why the highly sensitive person often finds themselves in a relationship with an emotionally immature person as well. The pathologically kind person's intentions are good. They aim for harmony and happiness. However, in doing so, sometimes, and this is difficult to even talk about because I, I so feel for the pathologically kind person, but while those intentions again are good, that over time they truly can become enabling. They may foster this dependency or potentially it will lead to them neglecting their own emotional needs. Now, both approaches, then the emotionally mature or the pathologically kind can really be a challenge in a relationship because they prevent open, honest, equal communication between partners and they reflect this, uh, this inability to respect boundaries. But often the people don't even know how to, how to express boundaries, especially if they don't even know what they need. The emotionally immature person, what they need is going to differ in any given moment. And their pattern is they're pretty used to getting rid of their discomfort and having their needs met moment to moment. And in that moment, they feel like that is the right thing to do. But then it can be a completely different experience 30 seconds later. And that can be really a challenge for those around them. Whether back to this inability to respect these personal boundaries, whether it's the narcissist crossing the boundaries or the pathologically kind person who is failing to establish or maintain their boundaries, both strategies in essence then represent, unfortunately, this sort of skewed way of seeking and offering love. One is centered on power and control and the other on self-sacrifice. And while I am a man of faith and I love the, uh, the Christian story of Jesus, that is not our lot in life to put that self-sacrifice out there, I don't believe. So for a relationship to thrive, it's important to, to foster mutual respect, healthy boundaries, open communication, genuine care for the well-being of each other. It's about navigating this balance between looking out for our own needs and then being considerate of our partners. And it is not easy, but I will tell you, it is definitely worth it. And I think one of the biggest challenges is self-care is not selfish. You must raise your emotional baseline in order to be in a good position to be the very best you. I, I often say the best partner, the best uh, husband, the best wife, the best employee, the best uh, servant the be of God, the best you name it. But that's raising your emotional baseline. It's the put your oxygen mask on first. It's the all those stories and cliches are there for a reason. In a relationship between an emotionally immature or narcissistic person and a pathologically kind person, it really is often that pathologically kind individual who is going to lose their own sense of self. And this happens because they try to mold themselves into the person that they believe that the emotionally immature partner wants them to be. It's like this constant juggling act of trying to meet their partner's needs and then keep them happy, often at the expense of their own needs and their own feelings, trying to keep the peace so that then he or she will not go off on the kids or just make, you know, make the vacation bad or make the evening a, a, a bad thing. And over time, this really does cause that pathologically kind person to lose touch with who they are. 
who they really are and what they truly want. Now, one of the most difficult things can be when the person is, let's say the emotionally immature person is doing the work and they're trying to change and they're starting to change. And I think one of the biggest challenges can be that that, that pathologically kind person still does not feel safe in the relationship. So even when the emotionally immature person is starting to say, I feel very, I feel like I am changing. I feel like I am, I can, and we can have more of these conversations that can still feel unsafe for the pathologically kind person. And I think this is one of the most difficult things. And I want to spend a lot of time talking about this in the, the coming episodes, because I understand that desire to, to protect yourself because you've probably given that uh, emotionally immature narcissistic person, the benefit of the doubt far too many times. So your own brain is saying, I'm not doing this again, because that inconsistency that you've been uh, a part of in the past has created this, this cycle of, I talked about it a couple of weeks ago, this intermittent reinforcement where the pathologically kind person is periodically rewarded with the love or the affection or the attention or the safety, and then punished with basically coldness or hostility. And this inconsistent treatment is what leads to those concepts of things like a trauma bond and trauma bonds are these, they're powerful emotional bonds that are formed from this repeated cycle of just disconnection and, and emotional immaturity and inconsistency it devalues the partner and then they all of a sudden go from the cycle of abuse. It's almost abuse, the devaluation and then positive reinforcement and then rinse and lather and repeat. It is, it's like being on a roller coaster and the highs, they can feel amazing, but then the lows are almost unbearable. And it's this, it can become this, this toxic dynamic that can be incredibly difficult to break free from because you desperately want those highs again. And in such relationships, it really does become so important to recognize the patterns and then seek help when necessary, whether that's through therapy or counseling support groups, because nobody should have to lose their sense of self or endure emotional manipulation in the name of love. Because again, that is not love. It's more control. It's crucial to remember that every person, everybody has their own thoughts and opinions and feelings and they matter. And it is, it is work to then be able to stay present sit with some discomfort and learn the new tools. But when you have those tools, then it really can be one of the most magical things that you can be a part of is a, an emotionally mature relationship. And back to what I was saying a minute ago, I think one of the challenges that I see so often in my office is, and I'm just going to go gender stereotyped here, but it can go either way. But let's say that the, the guy is really starting to recognize that his own emotional immaturity or narcissistic traits or tendencies and I'm really, maybe I'm going, I have no data to back this next one up. This is going to be a little bit anecdotal data, but we like to talk about guys like to fix things. And so I do feel that there are times when a guy will just take these tools and just embrace them and run with them and want to immediately uh, use them and fix the relationship and build the new relationship. And then still it can be feel overwhelming to the, the wife in that scenario. So then she is going to still test the relationship for safety. And I've been doing a lot of work on talking more about uh, the concepts of masculine and feminine energy and polarity. And, and I really want to make a pretty active, intentional push to, because I, and I love those concepts and I'm not trying to take anything away from the people that have spent their lives or writing books or have uh, large followings or accounts that talk about masculine and feminine. But I'm going to be very intentional about talking about nurturing and, and assertive that I want to talk about being assertive is that maybe that masculine energy. Again, it's not male, female. That's why I want to talk about it this way. There's a healthy version of being assertive and there's an unhealthy version of being assertive. And then nurturing. I want to talk about that where once um, I would talk more about the feminine and the feminine and masculine, because 
it isn't again about male, female, there's assertive and there's nurturing, but there can be a, a healthy version of nurturing and there can be an unhealthy version of nurturing as well. So my magnetic marriage course is about to uh, come out as an evergreen product, a standalone product. And I'm very excited about that. And this wasn't, this episode wasn't uh, intended to be a commercial, but I, I can't wait. I really can't. I'm, I feel very uh, proud of the magnetic marriage course and the material there. And my friend Preston helped me create it, but there's a module that talks about this assertive and nurturing. And so I want to just run, I want to give you a sneak preview of sorts while I'm on this topic, because I think that this does play into the love or control. I have a document from the first round of the magnetic marriage course for those who took that. This is the the masculine feminine polarity document. But here's why I think this is so important to talk about. So in the magnetic marriage course, in the previous revisions, the previous versions, we talked about that it's about its energy has nothing to do with gender. The masculine again and feminine are more about these core, these core energies, a healthy, a healthy nurturing energy is being receptive and open, creative, imaginative, intuitive, loving, welcoming, patient, expressive, magic, close, healthy boundaries. And then the unhealthy version of nurturing would be then codependent, submissive, docile, placating, over-accommodating, people-pleasing, self-pitying, vengeful, manipulative, abusive, doesn't own their own truth, doesn't speak up, and becomes resentful. So now if I go into that healthy, assertive energy, that healthy, the healthy assertive is decisive, clear, directed, resilient, takes action, confident, deep love, devotion, practicality, reasonable. And the unhealthy version of assertive is overly analytical, closed, absolutist, dominating, critical, raging, logic-based, linear thinking, apathetic, mocking, and demanding. So I think when you look at these as these core energies of sorts or polarity, you can find often a relationship where both people are in their unhealthy assertive or unhealthy uh, nurturing energies. One might be codependent, the other one might be overly critical or overly analytical. So it takes one of you to step out into that healthy version of uh, of nurturing or healthy version of assertive being more directed or resilient being more confident but full of deep love and devotion and being more loving and intuitive welcoming patient so i think those concepts become very critical when it comes to trying to reestablish love versus control in a relationship there in again from the course two states of living there's love and there's fear if one partner abandons their healthy energy out of fear then the other partner will subconsciously move to the center and fill in the the energy with unhealthy of the of the unhealthy nurturing unhealthy assertive and it's out of necessity because they're trying to create this polarity so when you move into this healthy assertive or nurturing energy then it allows your spouse to to safely move into theirs because it removes the fear that they won't be able to and it happens over time and it needs to be maintained so when you want your partner to respond or act differently, you have to first understand that they uh, are simply different and you can't be disappointed that they aren't like you. This is where I will speak a little bit to gender. So men, I mean, this is where it can be those tests for safety that the your wife may test you to see if you can protect. And it doesn't just mean physical protection, but it can mean that you can be there as this uh, directed, resilient, confident, calm person. And with having compassion for the and awareness of behaviors that you are aware of that you aren't even that you may not like in yourself and and take ownership of those and be willing to change. Uh, I like to 
challenge people in relationships to continue to ask, am I being the type of person that I would want to be married to right now? Because this, this masculine and feminine polarity, this assertive and nurturing polarity, that polarity in a relationship is absolutely necessary. The, the polarity is a state of having two opposite poles like a magnet because that creates attraction. If the assertive energy retreats and doesn't show up, then the nurturer will be forced to fill in that assertive void and it will depolarize the relationship and vice versa. And that does over time start to destroy attraction or connection. And I'll, I'll leave with one more thing here because I think this stuff is so interesting. It's a big part of the course and it was kind of aha moments when Preston and I put it together a few years ago. But the, the feminine, or in this scenario, we will talk a little bit more about the gender roles. The feminine will be shut down if they feel unseen, if they're unnoticed for the things that they're doing, accomplishing, contributing, even maybe wearing. They'll be shut down if they don't feel understood. I think this one's so important. The feminine and masculine can have wildly different meanings. That The feminine needs to be understood even if they aren't agreed with. And again, this can be, it doesn't necessarily mean the male-female concept, even though I know I just said that about this destroying polarity, because you can have a, a husband who is more um, of the one who wants to be seen and understood according to them. That might be more of that in their own healthy uh, nurturing role. And then the feminine will be shut down if they feel unsafe, that the masculine often has no idea why they might feel unsafe because they don't have that feeling. And they need to make sure that their partner feels safe. And again, it's not just physically, but it can be emotionally as well. Now, over on the other hand, you've got masculine and they can be shut down if criticized. They want to be your hero and they can't if they feel continually criticized. They can be shut down when when you present as cold or closed. When the feminine energy shuts down, it can feel like it's over for the the masculine. And also if they feel controlled, if the masculine feels controlled, they may go into this fight or flight mode. Now, I'm not saying it's right. It's the emotionally immature version, but that control then can also be enforced with the withholding of everything from attention and love. But so in, in those concepts, then as we get out of our own way, as we seek to really connect with each other and really start to see each other as two separate individual people, and we step maybe into sometimes those different roles of, of healthy, assertive and healthy nurturing. That then that in order to, you know, to unlock that healthy, assertive energy in the relationship, that person needs to be seen and acknowledged. They need to feel understood according to them and they need to feel safe and secure again, according to them. And then on the other side of the coin, that healthy nurturer needs to, to feel some sincere praise. It's, it's why so often men identify that love language of words of affirmation. They need that praise. They want you to be open and, and playful with your energy, uh, be vulnerable and give love freely and allow them to operate from a place of trust. Now, I, but if they are not trustable, I'm not saying that we skip right ahead of there, but I just wanted to lay out a little bit of a, of a blueprint that, that as we try to move more back into love versus control, that there are ways to get to that point. And it's by learning how to communicate more effectively and learning how to get out of that immature, unhealthy, assertive role or, or unhealthy, immature, nurturing role and stepping into those healthier versions. And then now, now we're back more in alignment. Now we're back in more of a polarity. And we are two people going through life as two interdependent people with just uh, mounds and heaps of curiosity. And there may be some tension from time to time as we recognize that we really are different. But in the grand scheme of things, that's what's going to actually build the attraction even more when we can operate freely from this place of trust. Thank you for taking the time to uh, go on this journey with me today. There'll be plenty more about the concepts around the magnetic marriage uh, course coming up down the road. 
I want you to know that I wanted to talk about these concepts, but the reason I did say that I'm not trying to pitch a, or make this into a commercial is because I recognize in unhealthy relationships, in emotionally immature, abusive, or narcissistic relationships, I spent all of last week talking about how couples counseling is counterintuitive and, and it's contraindicated, as they say. And so it's not something where I'm saying, well, uh, just buy my course. This wasn't the long con that two years later, I just want you to buy my marriage course and good luck. I just want you to understand that what the framework looks like and what you deserve in an adult relationship. But that does not mean that you may be in a situation where your partner is open or willing to try to achieve that. Now, I think it's good if at least one person in the marriage or the person that's maybe listening or the person that's on their own journey of self-discovery understands what a framework can look like and what a relationship could look like. And that's part of why I feel like when we don't know what we don't know, that it helps to have more information about what this utopian marriage could look like because it is out there and you do deserve it. So until we talk again, I look forward to any feedback, questions, comments, and I'll see you next time on Waking Up the Narcissism.